Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's the final edition of the Roundup for 2022. So glad that you're able to join us today for this live version of our final chat of the year. And we'll be discussing some looks back on what uh, we've done in this uh, in the past year, what we've learned, some looks forward uh, at what will be happening in a couple of uh, major destinations and source countries uh, with China and the UK. And we'll see what's brewing over the horizon for international education over the next few months. So as we do each week, we take our news stories that we turn into questions here on the Roundup from our SMIE Consulting newsletter called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. And SMIE stands for Social Media and International Education News. And that comes out Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern uh, on our for our email subscribers. And for those of you who are not yet subscribed, uh, you have two different options. I'm going to drop in the link to our subscribe page on our website, smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. And the link to the most recent edition that came out this past Monday is available to you. It came out on Christmas, uh, day after Christmas. And then for those of you who prefer to get your international ed news through uh, through LinkedIn, we have a version of that newsletter that also comes out Monday mornings sometime between 8.30 and 9 o'clock each Monday. And those will be regular features of our SMIE consulting uh, projects. The newsletter and our midweek roundups will continue into 2023. And I want to give a special thank you to uh, one of my employers, uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, who have, uh, I'm a full-time employee with them now. Now, and uh, they've uh, allowed me to continue uh, my work through this newsletter and the roundups. So thanks to the team at UNLV for uh, allowing me to continue this uh, legacy over the last four years, four and a half years now of uh, coming to you international educators in the United States and around the world with our uh, newsletter and our weekly live chats. So thank you again. And I'm glad you're a part of the conversation. So as we do each week, uh, we look at those news stories. We find some themes that uh, percolate to the surface in terms of top topics that might need uh, us to go a little deeper on. And those were fairly easy to find this week, uh, as we do every year. Uh, at the news stories in our in our industry and across the press and in multiple industries focus on year in review and looking forward, and that's what we'll do today with the, the roundup. So thanks again for watching live. Those of you who I see are uh, uh, part of the live conversation with us, and also thank you to those who are uh, watching on repeat uh, on our YouTube and Facebook channels as well as uh, maybe hearing the podcast version, the audio-only podcast version. Uh, we also wanted to make that available to you, and thanks to the thousands of subscribers to that, uh, those that have taken the time to download uh, the podcast over the last four years. So let's get right into our first questions. Uh, first question of the day, what were the highlights of 2022 in our industry, international education? And for the, for the, for the purposes of this uh, this article or this question, I'm going to rely heavily on an ICEF monitor article that came out this week, uh, this past week called, uh, appropriately enough, uh, what year in review, what we learned in 2022. And it focuses on four different areas about the pandemic and the impact on us and lessons we've learned, no going back, capacity questions hit close to home, and the new competitive advantage. And we'll talk about those four because I think they do qu uh, quietly sum up what, we're, uh, what we've seen over the last year in terms of the impact of, um, of global events. And as we say each week, both in our news stories and here on the Roundup, is we have to factor in 
the, the impacts of events, the war in Ukraine, uh, what's happened in Afghanistan in the past couple of weeks with uh, the Taliban again banning women from higher education, uh, the impacts those have on our industry, uh, the, the seemingly unrelated events uh, in terms of the pandemic and reopening of uh, re reopening in China and how that's led to increasing uh, COVID cases and all of the all of the knock-on effects this has. That's also led to the closing of U.S. consulates uh, in China, uh, again because of the exp uh, explosion of COVID cases in that country. So everything impacts us in what we do in international education, and it's important for us to always keep our uh, our fingers on the pulse on what's going on, and 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 as much as possible try and stay ahead of the curve uh, as as we do with what's uh, in our jobs because it is not uh, it's not a static situation in any in any respect with regard to uh, international education uh, with regard to world politics global events economic rise and fall uh, economic collapses in some places currency devaluations all of these impact uh, our field in one way or another so it's important that we we're aware of what's happening on in around us as we encourage our children to be aware of what's going on in the world around them we want in our own work uh, in our own professions need to do the same and have awareness of what's uh, what what is happening in the world and how that impacts what we do so uh, this is my attempt to help my profession understand a little bit better the impacts of some of these uh, of some of these global trends that we're seeing now, with regard to the SISEF article about the pandemic uh, and the, the lessons learned uh, in 2022, uh, this in particular, we know the impact it's had on society. It's fundamentally changed the way we live in a lot of places. Uh, that in some countries where it wasn't the culture to wear masks, uh, people suddenly started wearing masks because it was the right thing to do to protect uh, our people around us, those that are, are, are more susceptible to uh, to uh, these kinds of uh, viruses uh, to help protect them and protect ourselves in the same way. Uh, that in some cultures like in the United States, that was a big, big problem. Uh, we, we weren't used to that. Uh, we don't like being told what to do. But in the end, we, we, we did so because it's for the benefit of our communities and those around us and slowing the spread, whatever it might be. But uh, we also learned that um, we have, as a result of the pandemic, we've had impacts on how we do uh, education uh, in our, and how we recruit even. Uh, we know that our, our campuses have fundamentally changed the way they do education and, and delivery of coursework. Uh, there had already been trends to toward online education or having hybrid opportunities for classes uh, that had started even before the pandemic, but the, the impact of the pandemic certainly accelerated and made permanent some of those changes to delivery of courses that had previously been in person to partially in person, partially online, or fully online. There are full degree programs on our college campuses that have gone fully online uh, as a way for potential cost savings, as a way to reduce overhead. All of these things have happened and to increase access. Uh, and that access is something we'll, we'll see again a little bit later on in, uh, in these recommendations from ISEF uh, in terms of what we've learned. Uh, we saw a greater emphasis on diversification as a result of the pandemic. Uh, the need to diversify where our students are coming from and the markets that we engage in. Uh, the uh, move away from an all eggs in one basket uh, scenario, which uh, saw collapses that were already happening 
coming from China and a lot of uh, larger public institutions that have become overly reliant on the Chinese market for uh, international student uh, numbers as well as revenue. And that impact has had uh, downstream effects uh, when you see uh, Chinese students' uh, numbers continuing to drop, but also the impact in China of Chinese students not being able to travel uh, to, uh, to get to consulates. Now, as we just mentioned earlier, uh, the, uh, with the re relaxing of uh, COVID restrictions, we've seen uh, an explosion of cases in China. How big it is has, got, has gotten, we won't know because uh, China doesn't... Uh, uh, doesn't re really play uh, play well with others in terms of releasing those kind of numbers. So I will. Uh, but the, the, all the reports on the ground are it's getting getting worse. So the uh, the 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 virus is spreading rapidly there, and that's a combination of factors. Uh, it's a combination of not getting um, uh, the elderly fully vaccinated. It's a, a combination of also not having the best quality vaccines. That some are only fifty percent effective. Uh, as opposed to the 85-90% effective vaccines that we've had in the U.S. and most of the West. Uh, you've seen uh, the impacts of continued lockdowns over the last three years that have kept, um, when, you, when you lock down, you don't have contact with regular uh, viruses and bacteria that are in the air, you become uh, less, uh, you have less immunity to those. Uh, and, and you might not get the COVID vaccine or COVID uh, uh, virus because you're, you've kept yourself uh, kept, uh, away from it or the, the most likely sources of it uh, for so long. But now your immunity has reduced as a result. And when you go back out into the world, you're much more susceptible because your immunity is lower. And in these Omicron stages and uh, variants that have happened po uh, after the initials, you saw the, the uh, clearly was immune to, uh, even those that are vaccinated can still get it. We found that out here in the U.S., uh, but you might not get it as severe, which is the, the only benefit really of getting the vaccine. Uh, it doesn't prevent you from getting it. But uh, the challenges have been that uh, these viruses that are now spreading in China have are, 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 are also having knock-on impacts, like locking down uh, locking down uh, consulates from issuing visas because they can't get staff. They don't have the local staff hired because are uh, able to work because of uh, again changes to uh, lockdown procedures and employment opportunity or, or employment requirements of uh, that are uh, are only being able to be virtual or only working from home. Uh, so there's also some real impacts moving forward. So uh, we also look at how we recruit more. It's changed and not just where we recruit but how. Uh, in terms of, of reliance on a digital suite of tools to help us uh, interact with our prospective student audiences and their parents. Uh, we've ha uh, had uh, the rise of uh, the pandemic combined with the rise of agent aggregators and uh, tech platforms that have begun to dominate how we operate internationally. You see all these impacts really uh, uh, f filtering down to uh, all parts of what we do as international educators. Uh, you, you've seen that there is no going back. That was one of the other lessons I think we've seen from, the, from this past year. Uh, Pre-pandemic ways of doing things just will not work moving forward. Uh, they have to be adapted to changing circumstances on the ground in, in major markets. Uh, you have uh, the impact of the online learning piece that we've talked about as well that is meant, um, 
mentioned here. Uh, that uh, it's how uh, it's redefining what international ed means. And I think this is something when we talked about access earlier, uh, that there, there is an estimated global total of 20 million higher education students who would, who, and that's, that's in that mix. Uh, that is, so that we know there's about five and a half, uh, five, five and a half million students studying outside their home country right now. So that's one in four of that global total are currently studying abroad. Uh, but for every, uh, for every student who goes abroad, there are another four uh, that would like to study outside their home country but can't for various reasons, primarily financial. Uh, that could be family commitments as well. Uh, they might not have the qualifications or funds to support study abroad. So uh, that the opportunities for more institutions to deliver online education, uh, ver the versions of transnational education that exist, uh, that are offered by the UK, Australia, other, other Western nations in other destination markets, either fully online or hybrid or in-person in centers or universities overseas, those models become more important to provide access to an international education, much like we've seen at the secondary school level. Uh, we've seen international schools boom over the last five, ten years. Uh, and we know, in, we had a, a report about this in India about two, two, three weeks ago, where we saw that there are now over 700 international schools in India. Uh, and that's, uh, that's by uh, exponential growth over the last 15 years. So uh, these international secondary schools are helping to prepare a greater range of students for study abroad. Uh, and similarly, uh, some of those, not all of those are gonna be able to go abroad. There's th over 300,000 uh, students enrolled in India in these international schools, but not all of those are gonna be able to go abroad. Some use that as a leg up to get into some of the top Indian universities, or maybe go to a more regional uh, hub institution in uh, say Southeast Asia, or the Gulf perhaps. So those capacity questions will hit us as well, and that's another one of the features of the ISEF article that I wanna to touch on. These capacity issues hit close to home because uh, it can mean a lot of different things. It can mean capacity within individual programs uh, to in, in terms of seats uh, in, in campuses. It can also uh, talk about the availability of housing. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, about or last week, about the global housing crisis for international students, where in some countries we've seen in Holland recently, in the Netherlands, they've, uh, the government has said, we don't, we, we got, we're stopping recruitment of additional international students because we don't have the housing for them. We've seen in the UK, in Australia, uh, be significant housing shortages that have uh, led students to uh, be t actually being told to defer if they can't find housing. Uh, similarly in Canada, there's now reports that in some universities, uh, Brock University in Ontario is, is telling students this as well. If you don't have housing, defer. Uh, that is a real issue. And we see it, saw in Western Australia, the gov state government there is actually trying to encourage and will pay uh, residents of Western Australia to house international students if they have an extra room and will, the government will pay them uh, money each week to do that. So those are some real capacity issues that we have to have to manage. And I know at UNLV, we're going to be facing a, a housing shortage, a significant one, if we're going to grow to the extent that we need to grow uh, over the next five to 10 years. We don't have the on-campus space right now to grow to the extent we want, we need to at the undergraduate level and even have, provide a, a better range of graduate student housing. So we know that's an issue for us. So that has to be incorporated, not just on the international office, that has to be part of the university strategy 
strategic plan that to address these issues that are going to be a result of the, your expanding growth in certain markets. So it's part of what we need to be aware of as international educators and fight the fight that we need to fight and raise those issues up the chain and manage up in terms of expectations with our with our leadership at, at, on campus to help make sure we're on this on the right page for uh, addressing the needs that we will have uh, given the goals that the institution might have set. And the final one is uh, the, of the things I think best sums up 2022 is one that ISEF uh, uh, appropriately uh, talks about is that uh, the new competitive advantage and that's particularly related to post-study work. And here we're talking about what, what opportunities will students have in the UK, in Canada, in the US, in Australia, other countries to work after they're done with their degree. Uh, it's been a real hot potato in some countries in terms of how how much should we allow uh, international students to have in terms of work permission? How uh, long should they be able to work? Uh, is this a permanent piece of their, of, uh, is it, uh, should there be a very clear pathway as it might exist in Canada to, from study to work to permanent residency? Those are the things that we need to be thinking about and how we position ourselves. And as, as we always say with, uh, with US institutions, we need to have that global perspective. How are our competitor countries uh, positioning themselves for work rights uh, for students in terms of pathways from study to work to residency in the various destination markets. Because if you don't think that prospective students from different countries are trying to find out where the best advantage is for them in terms of if that's what they want to do, if they want that post-study work, uh, they're looking for it. Uh, in, in, in South Asia especially, they want to know what the options are. And having uh, data that you can refer students to about uh, what, uh, where your students go in different disciplines, international students, for jobs after graduation. What are those salary scales? Uh, what are their success rates for uh, OPT to H1B? That's a little harder for most institutions to track, but are you making that effort? So that's something that we really need to get to. So a lot of neat things in the mix there in terms of uh, uh, what we've learned, I think, in the past 12 months in international education. Uh, what I also want to do now is shift gears a little bit uh, to our second question, some of which is impacted with number uh, with the first one, and that is, will China pl play well with others, particularly in the West, in 2023? Uh, first article uh, is one that uh, raises a lot of uh, eyebrows when uh, we, we, we've heard about uh, free speech issues related to China and Chinese students uh, in, in the United States, depending on both sides of, of, uh, of the issue. We've seen uh, students uh, at Purdue University who uh, might have uh, participated in protests against the Chinese government that were threatened by other students, uh, and that is of particular concern. Uh, we've seen uh, that the what's happened in China with these uh, with the protests against the government and how that's impacted uh, the larger Chinese diaspora uh, around the world to rise up and and feel free to to express their uh, opinions and support their their family and friends back home who who have been living under these lockdowns for three years. Uh, we've seen uh, that uh, there there have been many. Um, there have been many issues with visas uh, for for international for Chinese students to go abroad, getting visas, uh, in terms of access because of lockdown lockdown decisions made in over the last three years. Uh, those had seemingly been, ironically, they'd seemingly not been an issue uh, in terms of getting the visa. 
because uh, the wait, visa wait times were very low as opposed to in India where they had been a lot higher. Uh, it, before this past two or three weeks, uh, decisions by the government to start lifting lockdown restrictions and the, the knock-on effect that's had in terms of raised uh, raised cases uh, of COVID. That's also just led, we've learned this past week, uh, to shutdowns of U.S. consulate operations in China. So for the spring students who are hoping to get back in the spring or to start in the spring, uh, that may be a real challenge if, as to if and when uh, the visas will, uh, consulates will be open to start issuing visas again. If they're returning students, they'll probably fall under the visa waiver program because that, that has been extended now through the end of 2023, which is great news, that if a student has already had a visa or uh, is going to be a first-time student visa applicant, but they've had a visa previously as a BB or other category uh, visa that has, has had them go through the security process that often is involved with a lengthy visa delay, visa interview delays, uh, that uh, hopefully that will help free those up. But for new students, that's going to be a real issue in terms of them being able to get to us for classes that start in January in less than a month or two months time. So what are we, what are we gonna do with that group? So uh, will China play well with the others in, the, in, in 2023? They kind of have to. And I think I, I shared a story a few weeks ago of what happened at UNLV. Uh, had conversations with, uh, with Chinese embassy representatives at the Education USA Forum during their global showcase back in August. Uh, left my car with them, said, if you're ever uh, looking to come to Vegas, please let me know. Uh, we uh, in all out of the blue in October, I've, uh, I was uh, heard from that person uh, saying that our first deputy minister for public diplomacy uh, wants to visit campus. And uh, they want to. Uh, we want to come see the campus. We want to help you with partnerships and and, and do all the all sorts of things that we uh, uh, we we hope that uh, we can be of service to you. And I, I told told my leadership at the time that I could count on two fingers, uh, the number of two fingers, the number of times in almost thirty years in the business that I've had an embassy person reach out to me and say they want to visit my campus. Uh, it's always the other way around. We want to visit them in D.C. and go to SACM and all the other uh, embassies that have scholarship programs. But this is the first time I've had them, second time, uh, that I've had someone from an embassy say they want to come visit me on my campus. So that was a sign for me, like, oh, something's happening here. Okay, this is good, <laughs> in a good way. Set up the meetings, uh, and they were there for a few hours, met with all the senior leadership from the president on down, uh, deans and directors and uh, provosts and all, all levels of, of the university for in these meetings. And it made, they made very clear that they want to help us grow our footprint uh, with China uh, in terms of students coming to us, in terms of potential faculty exchanges, stu student exchanges as well, uh, but also thinking about what might be uh, ways we could work together uh, on different things. And that's, uh, for the lack of a better phrase, I've, 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 I've termed it their charm offensive, uh, that they perhaps have realized in the government and now the consulates and embassies here in the U.S. Uh, from China that, uh, that, that there's been a lot of damage done reputationally uh, to China in the U.S. and that uh, they have to take some proactive measures to, to kind of gain favor again in the university community, in the governmental community, and they're making ways, they're looking at ways to do that. So it was, it was an eye-opening experience to see that happen. 
uh, and we're hopefully hope and we're hopeful that this will lead to some productive uh, partnerships and other uh, programs down the way. But I, I do think that there's an openness now that maybe didn't exist a year or two years ago from China to work more closely with uh, those partners in the U.S., whether universities, governments, states that see value in uh, expanding the relationship, not retracting and, and othering them, uh, othering each other uh, in, in terms of how we talk about our relationships. So I think that that's going to be an important piece for all of us moving forward as institutions, that if you're open, show openness to, this, to engagement and you make the right connections, you could potentially see some, some uh, return and see uh, some new programs, new initiatives, new partnerships uh, with institutions or government agencies in China that you didn't have before or that maybe had before and, need to, and could have lost contact with them and maybe they can be strengthened again. Because we, we've, we've experienced higher ed uh, with a great resignation uh, in our industry and in multiple industries around the country. We've all experienced that and there's been a, a, a talent loss in our profession to say the least. And I think what's happened, that's not unique to the United States. I think there are other countries that are grappling with this as well. Uh, whether people have left their jobs for various reasons uh, that they, they're having trouble filling that talent gap. But there's a need to re-engage, I think, and China, I think, is sensing that. So I think we're seeing more, we'll see more of that in 2023. So the answer to that question is, I think, yes. Cautiously optimistic there. Final topic of the day I'll spend some time on is uh, from a colleague of mine, uh, Louise Nickel. Uh, she operates out of Southeast Asia, and she is um, uh, ex heavily focused on outcomes, on careers for international uh, students that are looking to uh, to uh, to go home after they're done with their studies. Uh, she's British, has uh, has uh, a very strong uh, bent on all on what she does with uh, what's happening in the UK. And she's wrote a, a, written a very compelling piece is entitled "Is Anyone Listening? International Higher Education Is in a Parlous State." Parlous is another way of saying perilous uh, state for the UK in particular. Uh, so she uh, makes the case um, that with what's been happening in the wider world, what's happening uh, in the UK now, that uh, very, uh, she calls it a parlous state because of the challenges that are impacting uh, institutions post-Brexit. Uh, she kind of extends that uh, with the Turing scheme as opposed to what they had been a part of in, during uh, pre-Brexit with Erasmus Plus. Uh, and how that is how that is impacted with the relationship with European universities. Uh, it also, they also, she also talks about transnational education. Uh, that uh, though the UK is doing phenomenally well in this, the physical transnational education centers that they have around the world are not exactly huge money makers uh, for uh, institutions and are fairly cost intensive. Uh, so there's uh, there's a lot of challenges there moving forward. Uh, even though that's that's something that uh, they do better than anyone else, they they even they don't have it fully lo on lockdown in terms of uh, in terms of their uh, maximizing their their return on that. Uh, you also have uh, the funding that's been lost at UK universities uh, since Brexit in terms of uh, their domestic funding that has been lost and the international students that are 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 meant to subsidize, for lack of a better word, their domestic peers. Uh, there have been some challenges on immigration uh, in terms of our international students or should they be counted in the net migration numbers that the uh, British government ca uh, calculates each year. And there's growing uh, resistance to uh, allowing 
because uh, there has been a huge surge in postgraduate uh, students coming to the UK who have also been bringing dependents. And that has led to a little pushback from the, from the current Tory government to potentially limit, uh, uh, limit the numbers that come with dependents who might be attending uh, low quality institutions uh, in, the, in the UK. So that put a lot of folks in international ed in the UK on high alert, other than the Russell Group and a few other prestigious institutions that uh, the elites seem to want in, in Tory government uh, want to uh, to push uh, students to. Uh, like Prime Minister Sunak, he said this past week that uh, the UK wants the best and the brightest from around the world. Uh, but I think a lot of my f fellow international educators in the UK might say he only wants the best and the brightest to go to our top institutions. Uh, he doesn't necessarily want the non-best and brightest, however you define that, to come to the UK uh, to study at low-quality institutions, as his Home Secretary, Asuela Braverman, had mentioned. So these are the things that I think uh, the UK is, is grappling with right now in higher, international higher ed. They have an international ed champion uh, that uh, in, in the government. They've had that different people in that role for the past uh, almost decade now, uh, and you and you've seen um, there be a, a, a strategic plan that achieved their goal of uh, having 600,000 international students. They achieved that goal seven years earlier, uh, or eight years, eight or nine years earlier than expected. Uh, that the, the focus now is on leveling up uh, that uh, and how that happens. So. There's uh, the employability issue, as Louise kind of ref ref reflects, reflects on, is going to be one of the biggest challenges here, uh, that they have to uh, promote better uh, their uh, students' employ employment options, not only in the UK, for those that want to take advantage of the two-year post-study work visa that has been reinitiated the past three years, but uh, they also need to help those students that do want to go home, which is right now the greater majority, do want to uh, return to their home countries and find work. And it's a challenge uh, if universities don't have the infrastructure to, to find those uh, opportunities for their soon-to-be international graduates back in their home countries. So there's a, a greater infrastructure need there that uh, most institutions across the world don't have. Uh, but there are people out there uh, that can help students uh, who are looking to return home and, and find jobs in their field, which is ob obviously why they go in the first place to get their education over overseas, is to find a job uh, back home, or if they're not going to stay in country, uh, to go back home and, and get uh, employment in their field of study, so, as, as does any international student, as does any student who goes for a university degree. You want that. Um, and Luis does a really good job of, of laying out all those uh, individual challenges there for uh, UK higher ed. So kudos to her for that uh, well done article. Uh, so that's all we have for you today on the Midweek Roundup. Uh, we're glad you've been a part of the journey. Thanks so much for uh, uh, watching live. Uh, those of you who are watching on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or even YouTube Live, uh, really appreciate you being a part of the conversation. I'm looking forward to more of the same in 2023. So until then, have a very happy new year, and we'll see you in 2023. Cheers.